Matthew 20, and uh, we're going to get through, um, I guess if I had my stuff on the screen, I'd stop talking, through uh, the triumphal entry, <clears throat> Palm Sunday. All right. Are you guys enjoying the weather? It's so awesome. All right. Well, uh, chapter 20, verse 29, if you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll read through chapter 21, verse 11. And you can tell in the text, they've come from the Galilee, and now they're in Judea in the south. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, You shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and sat him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, we thank you um, for your word. Thank you for where we're at in our story as we are entering into the the week of of Jesus' passion as we're approaching Calvary. Lord, I just pray that, Lord, you have much for us to learn in this. And I pray that the, Lord, I also pray this time of getting ready to what it is for so for many. And I pray, Lord, past, we pray still for those hostages in Gaza to cover them, minister, some nurse, some soldier, whoever, minister in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Well, let's go back to chapter 20, pick it up in verse 29. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So, um, suddenly in the gospel of Matthew, we've gone from Galilee, and we're clear down and south in the district of Judea. and that Jesus has come through Jericho, uh, it tells us something about his journey itself. It, it says that he's, he's uh, taken the traditional route from the Galilee in the north and traveled south to Jerusalem, and he's been traveling south to Jerusalem. We've talked about this before. Um, Galilean Jews of that time who had any self-respect would avoid traveling directly through Samaria, Okay because they wanted to avoid the, the half-breeds that lived there, who they despised. You guys remember that, right? Okay. Of course, Jesus 
Uh, he had gone through Samaria a couple times because he wanted to minister the gospel to those people. He didn't have uh, the same feelings toward the, those people. He loved them. He wanted to reach them. And uh, so he had gone there and preached the gospel. You know the story of, of Jesus with the woman at the well. Uh, you know the story of, of uh, the, the, the sons of thunder who uh, wanted to call fire down upon the Samaritans, but Jesus rebuked them. He had come to save, not to torch people. And uh, so Jesus would go through uh, Samaria when it, it suited his purposes. Um, but that's not what he's done this time, and he's done it for his own reasons. Um, so typically, what the Galileans would do is they would travel south to the southern tip of the, the Sea of Galilee, and they would cross over to the east side of the Jordan, and they would travel down the east side of the Jordan River through Perea. And then once they got uh, to the opposite side of Jericho, they would cross back over. So they would, in, in their thinking, they would keep their feet clean from the Samaritans, but they would dirty them with the Gentiles on the other side of the river. Yet it's just this strange hypocrisy. You understand. So they would get over the Jordan River, and then what they would do is as they came out of the basin, up the highway there, they would be uh, confronted with the city of, of uh, Jericho, literally uh, the city of palm trees. So they've come to Jericho, they've come through Jericho, and then we have these blind men. Um, of course, uh, I went back in time and took this picture of Jericho just before Jesus got there. <laughs> Now, this is modern-day Jericho. Uh, it is quite lovely. It's very pretty. You see the palm trees, city of palms, a lot of greenery. It is an oasis. Um, the old Roman city of Jericho, uh, because of King Herod, uh, it, it really was this oasis in the ancient world. It had baths. It had pools and villas. It had amphitheaters and theaters. It was quite the spot. Uh, it, was a, it was a little over 3,000 feet below Jerusalem, and so it was really this nice haven for, the, for those who ruled over uh, Judea in the winter. Uh, they would go there in the winter and, and stay there as long as they could. So, of course, the, um, the Roman city of Jericho wasn't the ancient city. What happened to the ancient city of Jericho? Yeah, uh, Joshua and the gang, they yelled at it, cave. Okay, so they leveled that one to the ground. Um, you can still see the, the heap of rubble of that uh, just north of the, the, what was the more modern city of Jericho. Uh, today, of course, they both lie in ruins. Uh, now, when we talk about Jericho at the time of Jesus, we have to figure out which one the author is talking about. Uh, there was the old city and the new city, uh, which were close, but they were separated by uh, a relatively short distance. Now, the reason we have to distinguish between the two cities is because of what Matthew and Mark and then, uh, well, versus what Luke records. Here in Matthew, it says that two blind men cried out to Jesus uh, after he exited Jericho, okay? But Luke records that Jesus was approaching Jericho and one blind man cried out to him, okay? So, yeah, skeptics, you know, they loved for a long time what they thought was a discrepancy between the three Gospels, but as usual, uh, archaeology has silenced their ignorance by demonstrating that there were two cities and there were three blind men in the text. Okay? Jesus encountered two blind men as he was leaving the old city and then encountered another blind man as he was approaching the new uh, Roman uh, city of Jericho. So a discrepancy 
that was generated only by ignorance, which for skeptics is always an opportunity to make fools of themselves. So uh, I always praise God for skeptical ignorance. Uh, if you've read um, the history of the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, uh, no other uh, New Testament author has been attacked as much as Luke, but no other author has been vindicated over time uh, by his historiography, his, um, his geography, the names of uh, different uh, types of leaders in, in the, the, the Roman system. Uh, he has been, uh, I mean, by the skeptics, they're silent regarding the things that Luke said now. There's nothing left. They've exhausted it, and they all have egg on their face. So it's quite exciting. I don't know if you like that as much as I do. Another important detail is the road that Jesus was traveling. This was a, a major highway. It was traveled by hundreds of thousands of people, especially during the Jewish feasts, the three feasts of the Lord. And, and what it did is it made the highway, of course, a popular place for beggars. It was, it was prime just like these blind men. So Jesus was currently, we know, he was headed to Jerusalem for the, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is you know, intermingled with the Passover feast. And for the beggars, that meant more cash. Uh, what we know from history is that as people make religious pilgrimages, they're more generous. Well, they're more spiritual during that time of year because uh, they're going to Jerusalem, they're worshiping the Lord. And uh, so they have a tendency to be more generous with the beggars. And for whatever reason, uh, Mark, who we know is from Jerusalem, he knew the name of one of the two blind men. The, the, one, of, the one blind man was Bartimus, the son of Timaeus. Okay? Perhaps uh, this man was from Jerusalem or one of the smaller villages uh, around Jerusalem. And like beggars today, they have a tendency to make, them, you know, make their way from one corner to the next, right? And you go, over, you go wherever it's best, you know, wherever you can make those. Perhaps someone had aided his travels to Jericho to capitalize on the generosity of pilgrims. That's speculation on my part. Be that as it may, when these blind men heard that it was Jesus passing by, they began to cry out to him. Um, you could imagine, uh, you know, living in a world where there's no hospitals, there's no real doctor. If you've read uh, any of the Talmuds, uh, the, the ancient writings of the Jews about that time, and the kind of physicians there were, and the kinds of practices they had, you would likely not go to them, okay? Because it was, it was pure superstition. It was all snake oil. It was, and some of it was very, very bizarre, okay? And people weren't helped by them. We know from the, the woman that had the issue of blood, she had seen many physicians, and her condition just continued to get worse and worse and worse. So imagine living in a world where there's, there's none of that available to you, and then suddenly someone is in the society that you live in, and they're healing people with a word, by a touch. So if you have a, a serious illness, you're blind or whatever, that would generate a ton of excitement. Amen? Or, especially if one of your children had a serious illness, you would just be excited about that. And so these men certainly were subject to these rumors, to people talking. So they were filled with optimism when they heard that Jesus was passing. But they also had heard something else about Jesus, more than just the fact that he was a healer. It says they called out to him and they said, Lord, son of David. So they're attributing to Jesus a religious title that according to the religious culture of the time, that belonged to Messiah. That's, that's it. The, the, the Lord, the son of David, was the Jewish Messiah of Israel. And it was no mere flattery. Um, these men, they believed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, that he was the hope of Israel. 
They, they, they believed in their hearts that this was the one that the prophets had longed for. This was him. I'm sure that these men had heard that he was out and about healing other blind people. They were confident that he could heal them. So this is their opportunity to honor him as Lord and receive their sight. So they're crying out to him. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. How mean-spirited of the crowd, right? Yeah. In modern language, that would be, you better shut up. You better shut up. But these men, they're great. They wouldn't be deterred. In their hearts, nobody had a monopoly on Messiah. He had come for Israel, all of Israel. So they cried out even more, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. You know, these guys for being blind, they, they saw pretty well, didn't they? I think there are some benefits to blindness, by the way, especially at this time. You know, they couldn't see that Jesus was homeless. I mean, what comes to your mind when you see homeless people? Oh, Lord, son of David. There was a benefit to them. They couldn't see that he wasn't dressed the way that others thought the son of David should be dressed. They, they couldn't see with the bias and the presuppositions of the crowd. All they knew and all that mattered was this. Scripture had made promises. The Old Testament scriptures had made promises about Messiah that he would give sight to the blind. That's what's in their mind. When the Messiah comes, Isaiah said he would bring sight for the blind. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. Does the question seem silly to you? Two blind men come to you and you say, what do you want? Well, can't you see? But you know, Jesus often, he wanted people to say what they wanted, to say with their mouth what they believed in their hearts. Remember, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks, whether it's good or evil, right? Whether it's good or evil. In Romans 10.9, Paul said that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Now, it's, it's not because speaking the words are you know, a magical formula, as many treat prayer, especially the sinner's prayer. But when people truly believe, they speak, they confess it, right? When people actually believe something, it comes out of their mouth. They say something. These blind men believed in Christ, so they made their request. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. So Jesus, he honored their faith, and in doing so, he also kind of indirectly rebuked the lack of compassion demonstrated by the crowd, right? They said, we don't care about these people. We warned them to shut up. But Jesus took the time to speak with them, to heal them. But in healing them, he also proved the words of the blind men, that he is the Lord. He is the son of David. He's the Messiah who has come to give sight to the blind. I think today people need to add faith to their sight. But these men, after Jesus touched them, he added sight to what they already knew by faith. This is important. You know, faith was the very substance of what they were assured of by Scripture. Isn't that it? They were fully convinced of what they could not see only because the Scriptures promised it. You see, the Word of God, as we said, assured them that when Messiah came to Israel, he would bring sight for the blind. So here it is. The Word of God said it, they believed it, and that settled it. That's faith like a child. I'm not sure there's anything more powerful for man than simply taking God at his word, just simply reading it, 
understanding it and taking him at his word. The word of God is true. In our creeds, we say every word and every part of the words, everything the word declares, everything it implies, everything it den- it's all true because it's all the word of God. Absolutely. A syllogism goes like this. God cannot err. The Bible is God's word, and therefore the Bible cannot err. It's true whether we believe it or not. It's true whether we like it or not. That's my trouble. I know it's all true. I just don't like some of what it says about me. (laughs) It's fine if it says it about you. (laughs) But the truth is, because it's God's word, it should be believed. And by the word should, I mean there is a moral obligation to believe it, right? He is the most trustworthy person in the universe. His word should be believed. We're obligated to believe it. The book of Hebrews says that unbelief is actually wicked and that without faith it's impossible to even please him. It honors him to trust him, to take him at his word. And when we believe it, we get to enjoy its benefits. Look at, real quick, uh, what is said of Abraham in Romans 4. It says of him, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham, well, first what happened was God came to Abraham, made promises to him. He, he gave Abraham his word, and Abraham believed it. So it says he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And then because he believed it, God attributed that to him. He imputed it to him for righteousness. The bold capitals come from Genesis 15, 6. That's where it says Abraham believed in the Lord and his faith was attributed to him for righteousness. What was the benefit of his faith? What was the fruit? Righteousness, imputed righteousness. He took God at his word, and the benefit was justification unto life. These blind men believed on the Lord, and the benefit initially was their sight, but I'm sure that their faith later bore the fruit of salvation. For they went, as moment, the moment they were seeing, they went after him. They followed him. Amen? Faith produced benefits. Let's go to chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. So they've gone 15 miles further, that is west. They've climbed 3,300 feet higher, and they're now nearing Jerusalem They come to the Mount of Olives, to the village of Bethphage. Literally, uh, it means unripe figs. I don't know why you would call a city unripe figs. What day is it in the text? It's today. It's Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday, as we've called it. Now, real quick, uh, because Jesus would not have traveled on the Sabbath, which is which day? Saturday. Okay, evening on Friday to evening on Saturday. He must have been in Jericho on Thursday and then traveled up the mountain to Bethany on Friday, where we know from the other Gospels, he spent the night with his friends, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Bethany was located on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, about two miles away from Jerusalem. So there in Bethany, spent the Sabbath with his friends and his disciples. Sunday morning, he now is making his way to Jerusalem. And as they're coming to Bethphage, Jesus gives... This instruction to two of his disciples, go into this village, Bethphage, and recover two donkeys, a dam and her colt. And if anyone says anything to you, 
you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This is a mission of faith. Notice how strange the request is. This is like, this is like Old Testament Elisha stuff. It's great. Yeah. In Mark 11, uh, the disciples were indeed, they were confronted. They, they went to get, they, they were untying the, the, uh, the two donkeys, and somebody confronted them, and they answered them just as Jesus commanded, and they were allowed to leave with the donkey. That would be fun, wouldn't it? How would you feel going into the city untying those donkeys? Would you look both ways? <laughs> you, you would look so suspicious. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Jesus knew where the donkeys were. He knew that the disciples would be confronted about it. And he knew that once they gave the answer, that they would let him have the donkeys. It's great. Jesus had not gone into Bethphage the night before to speak to the owner or the residents of the city to stage the event. This was all designed in advance by his father for a very specific and necessary purpose. Also, just real quick as a side note, notice how Jesus had the disciples respond to those who would inquire, the Lord has need of them. Jesus referred to himself as the Lord. This isn't common uh, in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Jesus is usually a little elusive about the fuller identity of himself, okay? But he doesn't tell them, say that a Lord needs them. Don't tell them that somebody important or someone of authority needs the donkeys, but tell them that the Lord needs the donkeys. This is a subtle claim to deity, okay? Also, you know, why would these people allow the disciples to take these two donkeys unless they believed in advance what was happening here? It was certainly an impression that was placed on them by the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, let me explain a little bit why. Now, if somebody wanted to untie some donkeys and take them away from me, I don't care whose they were. I would let them take them because I can't stand donkeys, okay? <laughs> they are the most obnoxious animals on the planet, okay? But during Jesus' time, donkeys were some of the most important beasts of burden, okay? These animals really were equivalent to a farm truck and multiple, you know, like farmhands and servants. And the boys were just allowed to drive two of them off the lot without paying a cent. This is a big deal. It's miraculous. But somehow the residents there knew that the Lord needed them. But for what? All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Yeah, the bold capitals come from uh, the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, okay? Now, the, the prophecy is important, and I encourage you to go read the whole thing, okay? Because uh, the, it was said within a context. It wasn't like isolated and then applied to Jesus. It's all about Jesus and what he would, okay? Interesting, not all that he was first coming. But the historical context of Zechariah's prophecy is important, because it was given after the Babylonian captivity when Israel had no king. She had governors, she had priests, she had prophets, but she had no king. So the, the prophet Zechariah, one of the last prophets before what we call the, the intertestamental period, you know, that 400 years of, of prophetic silence. Zechariah, one of the last prophets of the Old Testament, he left Israel with the hope of a future king, capital K. And in a sequence of Zechariah's prophecy, her king would initially come, initially come lowly, sitting on a donkey. 
Now, now all of that imagery, you know, expecting someone on a donkey, it's, it's important because it, it communicated something very different than if he rode on a white stallion or a war steed. He's coming on a donkey's colt. He's lowly. He's peaceful. He's humble. I mean, what could be more humble than a homeless man from Nazareth riding on a borrowed donkey? What kind of king borrows a donkey? What kind of king borrows anything? This is, this is humiliating. And his, his entourage is not soldiers and the wealthy. They're fishermen. And they're other people of very low reputation. So indeed, he was lowly. He was in this, this whole scene. He was very unimpressive. But his mission was one of greatness. You know, today in the text was the beginning of what we call the week of his passion or passion week. Passion, of course, coming from the Latin, which means suffering. Suffering. This is the week of his suffering. But it would be concluded with victory because in his mission, he'll atone for the sins of the world. He's going to defeat death and plunder the grave by his resurrection. And as Romans says, that it's by his resurrection that he will be able to distribute all of the redemptive benefits of the cross. His suffering is death, would give life or birth to life and redemption. And I can just imagine that, you know, Jesus knows, remember, he had already before this, as they were leaving Galilee, he he once again, for the third time, told his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed to the religious leaders of Israel. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles, and they're going to murder me. But on the third day, I will rise. And so Jesus, as he ascends the, you know, from Jericho to Jerusalem, all of this is coming upon him. His suffering has already begun because of what's on him. And he leaves Bethany. He's coming to Bethphage. And I can just hear the Father saying to him, the cult awaits you. This is where it begins. So Jesus was brought into his passion by a donkey's colt, just as Zacharias said that he would. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. What do you think they talked about on the way there? Do you know what the punishment is for stealing a donkey? <laughs> but they brought the donkey and the colt. This is where the translation gets quite funny. Laid their clothes on them and sat, set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Yeah. So because the colt was you know, unsaddled, the disciples put their outer garments on it, and then Jesus began to ride the donkey down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. Okay. Now, Jesus did not ride both donkeys. Okay. I think somebody already asked that this morning. Uh, as it can be taken in the English, okay, Jesus, uh, he didn't ride on two donkeys. He rode on the garments, plural, that lay on the donkey. He sat on them. Them is not referring to donkeys. That would look ridiculous, straddling two donkeys. That would be quite the ride, okay? <laughs> them is the garments laid on the colt. Is that clear? If it's not clear enough, go to the other Gospels and they clear it up, okay? Fair enough? If you insist on thinking that Jesus rode two donkeys, that would be a lot of skill. And then the multitude, it says, who traveled with Jesus from Galilee, these, mind you, these are the people that have seen Jesus for years now. They've been listening to him teach. They've been watching him perform miracles. This is a crowd that's very acquainted with Christ. And so what they began to do is they, they would, like the disciples, they would, lay their, they would take off their outer garments and lay them on the road. Others were breaking palm branches off and putting them on the path to make, I don't know, some kind of path for Jesus to ride on like a king would. Certainly a gesture of recognition on their part. But it's nothing near what followed. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What does Hosanna mean? 
save now, save now, son of David. So this group of people recognize Jesus for who he is, the son of David, just as the blind men had declared him to be. Okay? He's heir to the throne of empire, as the angel told Mary. But the problem is there's a misunderstanding among the people. Okay? For Jesus was entering the city for one reason, while the people hailed him for another. They shouted for Jesus to save, and indeed Jesus had come to Jerusalem to save his people. But the multitude were thinking that Jesus would save them by way of military might, that he would remove the the yoke of Roman bondage by way of war. But that's not how he came. He came on a donkey. He came lowly, gently, like a lamb to the slaughter. His salvation, of course, was to be secured by bloodshed, but he would secure it with his own blood. His first coming was to secure the spiritual salvation of all who would trust in his sacrifice for their sins. His coming, his first coming, was to be fulfilled as Zechariah 9.9 said. As we've said, he didn't come on a, a mighty stallion fitted for war. He came on a lowly donkey offering peace with God by the blood of his cross, as Colossians 2 says. But you see, as Jesus was, as he mounted the donkey and was riding forward, and they're shouting all this stuff, they're not thinking of Zechariah 9.9. That's not what's in their mind. They're looking at passages like Isaiah 63. It's very different. And many others that refer to his second coming. Now, Jesus, of course, he will come on a white horse, just as Revelation 19.11 says. And when he does, the scriptures say, he will judge righteously. He will make war with the wicked and the unbelieving. And at that time, he will indeed rescue Israel from her enemies. And then he will rule from sea to sea, just as Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10 and verse 15 say. It's interesting. You read the prophecy of Zechariah, you have first coming stuff, and you have second coming. The people were only interested in the second coming stuff, which they had conferred as first coming. And we, though, we should be expecting all of the prophecies to come to pass, not just the one from Zechariah 9, which has come to pass. So as Jesus rode the donkey, the people also shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. Now this, this declaration will become ever so valuable to Israel in the future. Um, we're going to talk about that when we get to that place in chapter. Jesus said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes. We'll unpack that. When we... And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So you can imagine, uh, There's this entourage, okay? There's shouting, there's jubilation, okay? And the the residents of Jerusalem, they're taken back. They want to know what all the commotion is about. Who is this guy? And why are the people behaving this way? So the, the residents of Jerusalem, they were curious. We'll find out that the Pharisees weren't happy about the entourage because it looks like insurrection. That would make them very nervous about the, uh, the Romans, and the Romans always got nervous around Passover anyway because historically there were problems because that's what brought the patriotism out of the Jews, and it wasn't uncommon for there to be riots and dead Romans, okay? So any sign of insurrection would get the Romans riled up. Good thing they didn't speak Aramaic. But the Pharisees, will see, they tried to bring a calm to all of this because this entourage, this whole thing was making them very Nervous. Prior to now, uh, in obedience to the law of Moses, Jesus had only been to Jerusalem during the feasts. Okay? So when he was there, we know that he did many miracles. 
But not everyone from Jerusalem was present to witness them. He also preached in the temple, but not all the residents of Jerusalem heard him. Okay? Most had heard of him. Most had heard the rumors about the miracles he performed, the sermons he preached, the grief that he was to the religious leaders, but most did not know who he was or what he looked like. So those who were from Galilee, of course, they clued them in. This is the prophet from Nazareth. So Jerusalem must have been just buzzing with excitement for just, I think, a number of reasons. One, people love controversy. They love a good challenge to authority. And Jesus, he never disappointed in that regard, did he? It was a show every time the Pharisees came and confronted him. He was also known for his miracles. And though the Pharisees had told the people to avoid any affiliation with Jesus, they said, you'll be removed from the synagogue. It didn't stop them from bringing their sick, their sick loved ones, okay, or seeking healing for themselves. And when he taught the people, the text says that he did so with authority, unlike the religious leaders. You remember, uh, we talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus would say, you have heard it said. And so when the Pharisees would teach, they would say that Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this, and they would pull out this genealogy of rabbis and all that they thought about whatever. But none of, nobody was coming out with the authority of God's word and just saying, this is what it says, until Jesus showed up. And he would open the scriptures to them, and he would teach the scriptures with divine authority. And so when he taught the word of God, the people were fixed upon They would just hang upon his word. He was upholding the truth. He was bringing hope to the people. But the people of Jerusalem especially, as John really points out, they were just torn. They were torn. All they had known was handed down to them from the Pharisees, that was the tradition of the elders. Now imagine growing up in, in the pedagogue, especially as a male, okay? You're being trained as a young man into your adult life. All you know and all you think that the scriptures say is what the tradition of the elders is, right? Because the average person didn't read Aramaic. They would hear from the rabbis who they were taught by. They were instructed poorly from the scriptures. And so when Jesus came teaching... It was, they were torn. But he brought so much clarity to the word of God as he communicated the heart of God. He never taught and upheld the traditions. He just taught the scriptures. He called the people to its precepts. He exalted his father. And then he would walk it out that he did all those things the scriptures say to please his father. He exuded conviction for the word. He had compassion for the people. So they were torn. But it was risky to follow Jesus. But something was tugging on them. And then other than two Pharisees, the religious leaders had written him off. They had condemned him in their hearts. They were conspiring against his life. But the people were just undecided. As long as Jesus was in Jerusalem, curiosity would. They would sneak in. They would listen in. They would watch. They would try to get a, a cut of the action. Very interesting time. Now, because it's Palm Sunday in our text, I think it's prudent because later on, Jesus is going to mention that if only you had known the time of your visitation. The text, Jesus is implying that they should have known the time of, his implica- of, of his, his, uh, their visitation. The reason is, is because of what Daniel 9 says. So I'd like to go there next week. I don't have time to do it today. But to look at Daniel's prophecy about the coming of Messiah. And Jesus held them accountable for not knowing that. They should have known the scripture. But for now, with the crowds, I would say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes. In- go ahead and stand up and Thanks for the glasses. Be brave and show yourself. Father, we love you. And Lord, as the text reveals, everything will be done 
in accord with your plan. Nothing will be out of its place. Nothing will put a challenge to your task. It's all ordained. Our lives are in your hands, Lord, which is comforting as we see the world around us becoming what it is. But Lord, even that is within the boundaries of your sovereign plan, and it cannot thwart your plan. of. And so we, Lord, with the knowledge of the scripture, we do say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. And we look forward to your coming. And Lord, I pray that we would, as John says, we would live in such a manner that uh, we would not be ashamed. When so help us to walk where we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.